0: Let's pray. Lord, it is our privilege uh, to be here this morning to come before you uh, to sing your praises. Lord, I'm thankful for a time that you've designed each week uh, for us to really understand uh, what the rest of the week is about and how we are to live and how we are to function according to your word. Lord, I pray that as we have um, been singing This morning, I pray that it's from hearts that are not far from you. And I pray that we're not offering up words that are vain, but I pray that um, from hearts that are completely given to you and completely in love with you, completely drawn to you, um, that we would be proclaiming truth. Lord, I pray that you would um, allow us to have more understanding as we open the word this morning as to who you are and what you're doing and what your plans are. Lord, I'm thankful that you have a plan for salvation. I pray that we would never, no matter how much we hear about that, I pray that we would never take it lightly. Lord, this morning as we gather here, we know that there are many other churches gathering uh, all over, and uh, we pray for them uh, collectively, and specifically I want to pray this morning for Trent Brown at Gateway Fellowship. Uh, I'm thankful for his friendship, and I pray that um, as he preaches this morning, as their congregation gathers for worship, I pray that they're really enjoying you. I pray that they're eager to grow in their understanding of who you are. And I pray that Trent would be run through with the message before he utters a word. I pray that for myself this morning. Lord, I pray that as we look at the word this morning, that if, if we have two things in the word that um, that make a lot of sense separately, but they're, they're hard to understand together, And if we're given to more understanding on one point, I pray that we would not dismiss the other thing from the word because we don't understand it as much. But rather, I pray that you would grow us in Christ's likeness and sanctify us so that we would walk in the word completely. I pray that we would be eager to be bright, eager to tell the good news, eager to be salty, eager to let our lights shine, and eager to proclaim the gospel that you have entrusted to us. We love you. We pray that you would guide this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, you're definitely going to need one. So turn to Matthew 13. There's Bibles in the backs of the pews. If you don't have one, that one's yours. It's a gift. Take it home with you. Read it. Mark it up. Ask questions. Uh, I'm pretty excited because this morning I get to shoot an elephant that I've wanted to shoot for a few years now. And not only that, I get to shoot it again next week and the week after. And I'm excited about that. So turn to Matthew 13. And we'll begin. Verse 1. Matthew 13, verse 1. I'm going to read through 23, so please read along and climb into the text as I read out loud. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case 60, and in another 30. In March and April, I preached a couple of sermons on sovereignty and prayer. The thing that we considered was that if God's going to do what God's going to do, what's the point in praying? If you want to know the answer to that question, go online and listen to the sermons. I'm not preaching that again this morning. But for the next few weeks, we're going to use Matthew 13 to consider a similar question. Specifically, if God is going to save who God is going to save, what is the point in evangelism? Hear the question If God's going to save who God's going to save, what's the point in evangelism? And rather than simply answering, I'm calling that kind of thinking into question. Sometimes, rather than answering the question, it's important to consider why it's even being asked. So before we dive into this text, I'd like to prime the pump a bit by asking you a handful of questions. So as I ask you these questions, I encourage you in your mind to answer or figure out what your answer would be. Don't answer out loud. It might be embarrassing. Just answer in your head. Number one, as you have grown in your understanding of God, his will, and his ways... Have you also grown in your eagerness to share that news with other people? That's the first question. Two, does your belief in a sovereign and electing God hinder your evangelistic efforts, or does it fuel your evangelistic efforts? Three, when I mention the word evangelism, is there an urgency to go and do that? Or for some of you, is there hesitancy because you suspect I might be talking about something very man-centered. Do you see evangelism as an option or as something required of you by God? Those are the questions. The concern that I have as one of your pastors, and the thing that I hope to address in the next few weeks is that I don't know if Crosspoint Fellowship could be more equipped for evangelism. We've been in the book of John for like eight years, the better part of a decade the sweeping narrative of the gospel with specific detail. We've been thoroughly evangelized. I don't know if Crosspoint Fellowship could be more equipped for evangelism. Yet, I don't know if Crosspoint Fellowship could be more prone to miss the mark and not be a part of evangelism. We have to be very careful. I'll explain this more. We ourselves have been thoroughly evangelized ever since 2003 as the large majority of our time has been spent receiving the preached word from the gospel according to John the Evangelists. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all considered some of the first evangelists because what they share is the gospel. So if you're a part of evangelism, you're sharing the gospel. We'll look at it more specifically in a few moments. But they were all considered evangelists. And I would say that those who have thoroughly uh, been evangelized are well-equipped for evangelism. It's not a scheme, it's God's design. Have you ever seen someone who's clearly made for something? Have you ever seen someone who's like very specifically equipped to do something? Like Mike Tyson. is clearly made for boxing. He's real thick. He's built like a tree trunk. He's hard to knock over and good at knocking people over. He's built for boxing. Michael Phelps is built for swimming, right? Long torso, long arms, long legs, webbed fingers. He's very good at swimming. He's built for it. Or like Dirk Nowitzki is clearly built to play basketball. You put a basketball on his hand, and it's clear that he was made for it. And if he decided to try his hand at baseball, we all saw the opening pitch. (laughs) Or if he decided to try his hand at public speaking, you would think to yourself, wow, what a waste. That guy's built for playing basketball. Stick to what you're good at. That's how I feel about Crosspoint, not that we're built for basketball, but that we're built for evangelism because we're built for worship. You're thoroughly equipped. If we fail to be evangelistic, if we fail to be eager to share the gospel regularly, I think to myself, wow, what a waste. We are built for this. If there's no urgency for you to recount some of what you have heard over the last few years, there's something wrong with that. Look at verse 1. In Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them, saying many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. So climb into this text, see Jesus going out of the house, going about his day regularly, and then what happens? People begin to gather around. There's a crowd, And so in order to speak to the crowd, he gets in a boat and he moves out on the water a little way so that they can all hear him. The next few weeks, we're going to consider some kingdom of heaven parables. I want to give an explanation of these kingdom of heaven parables. Jesus is explaining the movement of his kingdom on earth. So if you're thinking, I've never heard of this kingdom of heaven thing, that's bad because you're a Christian. And that's what you're all about. Jesus' kingdom is on earth and it's moving forward and, and it's doing so by people who proclaim the good news. So he's not just talking about the kingdom in, in future times in heaven, but how what is happening right now on earth has effects that are both heavenly and eternal. Jesus' reign as king is not being anticipated as much as it is now upon them as an unshakable reality. The kingdom of God was something regularly understood throughout the Old Testament. So when Jesus begins talking about the kingdom of God in reference to himself, people perk up and pay attention. Christ is speaking in terms that say, the good news, the gospel, is that the kingdom finds its fullness and fruition in me, Christ. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he's essentially sharing the gospel. And he's saying, good news, your king is here. I have come in fulfillment of the many prophecies that spoke of my anticipated arrival. Your sin problem that you have that keeps, you from, that keeps God from accepting you has a remedy. Your life is completely wrapped up in my life because I give my life that you might be reconciled to God. This is the gospel. In Christ you are offered salvation, forgiveness for your sins, reconciliation to God. And he says it happens because his righteousness is counted as ours. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the gospel. This is Jesus' kingdom message. Something that's helpful for us in this piece of Scripture is that it's very concentrated as to explain what God's kingdom on earth is about and why the part about Jesus is really good news. If you hear about Jesus a lot, and it's become sort of common to you, like you're like, huh, Jesus, Jesus. Don't allow your mind or your heart to go there. The part about Jesus is always really good news. It's never old. It's never common. What Jesus has done is not common in the least. It's completely otherworldly and divine. So this is the good news about the gospel here. Jesus is really good news. And in this piece of scripture in Matthew, Matthew is sowing seed. Listen to how concentrated this is. Matthew is sowing seed while talking about sowing seed by recounting a time when Jesus is talking about sowing seed while sowing seed. Do you see how concentrated it is? What should we be paying attention to? Sowing seed, correct? It's very concentrated. This would be like me explaining how to mow a yard while mowing that yard. Jesus is modeling what he proclaims, and Jesus is proclaiming what he models. So what is it that he wants us to see here? What are we supposed to model and proclaim? First, consider this. Jesus finds it worthwhile to respond to an opportunity that God has presented. That's what most of evangelism is. We have this skewed view because there's so much going on that people call evangelism that may not be evangelism at all. He's responding. Jesus is responding to this opportunity that's before him that God has presented. That's how most of your evangelism is going to take place. God-ordained opportunities where you, as one equipped with the gospel, are expected to share it and to tell people about Jesus. Jesus doesn't see it as an inconvenience. Do you? Jesus doesn't see it as unnecessary. Do you? He doesn't see it as separate from the divine plan of his Father, this normal day on a seashore where he has opportunity to share the gospel. Jesus could have looked at that group and known the plan of his father. He could have looked out and looked at every face, and he could have known the plan of his father, and he could have known who would ultimately love him. Yet he found it necessary to address the entire crowd. He could have said, look at that crowd. I'm sure thankful my father's going to save some of them and gone about his way, but he didn't. He addressed the entire crowd. So what Jesus will make clear and what God makes clear is what can be read in Romans 10:14. How listen closely to this, because you have a responsibility in evangel, evangelism. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I'm praying that God opens our eyes to the reality that we are surrounded by similar circumstances and situations every day. The opportunity for you to share the gospel is not a rare one. We will talk more about this when we start looking more closely at the soils. But I hope for now, at least, you will see that these types of circumstances are not abnormal, and in them you must consider that the person or the people that you are talking with will only believe if they hear, and you've been equipped with a message to share with them. Look at verse 4 in Matthew 13. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. For a moment, we need to consider who does the sowing and what is being sown. Because some people make a mistake in evangelism that if you just sort of talk about various aspects of Jesus, then we'll just call it the gospel. Or that um, evangelism seems like something an evangelist should do, so I'm not going to worry myself with it. Those are misconceptions, and I want to work through those. Who does the sowing and what is being sown? We need to consider this because, again, in our culture, evangelism takes many shapes, and not all of them are right. Some call themselves sowers, yet they have no seed. And some are thoroughly equipped with seed, yet doing no sowing. It's sort of backwards. So turn to Matthew twenty-eight, sixteen through 20. We're going to look at a few satellites here. We're going to be, this will be the most turning you do this whole sermon, and we'll go straight from left to right. I won't try, I'll try to keep it from being too crazy. Matthew 28, verse 16. This is what is known as the Great Commission. This isn't the kind of thing that you only just need to hear once. You need to hear it again and again and again and again and again and again and again because we're so prone to just forgetting. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 16. Look for the seed and sower in this text. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the seed is all that Jesus has commanded. So, if you're sharing the gospel with people, you want them to know all that Jesus has commanded. And the sower is who? It's you and me. It's followers of Jesus. That's who he's talking to. Turn to the right a little more to Mark 16. How does Mark put it? He's an evangelist. How does he want us to hear it? Mark 16, verse 15 through 16. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Well, that's no small task, is it? Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And listen to this. Listen to what hangs in the balance. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Do you have compassion enough to care that someone is saved? Does your heart have any response to the fact that some might be condemned? Do you hear this call clear enough to say, I don't know whether they're going to be saved or condemned. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. Jesus says do it. He made sure Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all included. I'm going to do that. There is a sense of urgency here that you're supposed to have. The gospel, the evangel, the the evangelion, Do you have a biblical sense of what's at stake? In my notes, I wrote, allow a little silence. Let it be uncomfortable if needed. Do you understand what's at stake? Do you understand the call that is placed on your life? Turn to Luke. A little bit more to the right. Twenty-four. Luke 24. Verses 44 through 49. This is after the resurrection. What Jesus is saying is very, very important. He's about to ascend. He says this in uh, Luke 24, verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What he's saying there is, The whole Bible's about me. All of it. It doesn't just start in Matthew. The whole thing is about me. He wants to make sure they see that. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, much like he has done with many of you sitting here. Do you have understanding in the Scriptures? It's not because you're smart. It's because God's opened your mind to understand them. And there's a heart connection there that has to be achieved by the Holy Spirit. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you realize the charge that God has placed on your life that you are to proclaim? Do you realize what you're proclaiming I've mentioned that we've been thoroughly evangelized by the book of John, as Ben has very slowly moved through it over the last decade. Turn to John 20. It actually wasn't all that long ago that we were in John 20. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then in verse 31, John says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God sent Jesus, and Jesus sends you with a message to proclaim. We've said that the long arm of evangelism is a healthy church. We we can go to one side where um, maybe we think it's just if we say the right things, but the way we live doesn't matter. That's an imbalance. But also, if we just live in a right way but never say anything, that's also an imbalance. See what God is telling you here. We must absolutely not miss this. You have been given the seed of the gospel. And Jesus' expectation on your life is that you sow that seed. Proclaim. As we weave in and out of conversations day after day, we should be eager to get to the part about Jesus. Are you eager to get to the part about Jesus? I want you all to hear this. Your pastor, I can speak for your four pastors, we all have the same view on this. Your pastors who firmly believe in the doctrines of grace and who firmly believe in the, doctrines of, the doctrine of election, just as firmly believe that both personally and corporately you should be, we should be eager to do the work of evangelism and joyfully proclaim to others that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in His name. Evangelism is good. Evangelism is biblical you should do that. It's good. Some people join Reformed churches for the wrong reason. I went there. Some people join Reformed churches because they sort of like the idea of this burden for evangelism being lifted. Consider as I talk about this, this, are you guilty in any way? Because I can be guilty of this on one day and not the next. Some like the idea of this burden for evangelism being lifted. It seems so futile anyway. Some, maybe you're one of them, like the idea of not having to continue this tedious cycle of sharing a message that's largely rejected and uncomfortable and awkward because, by the way, the, the, the way is narrow. It's awkward. They would much rather ease back in the lounge chair of sovereignty Resting in God's finished work, yet ignoring their obedience in it. Sovereignty is not a lounge chair. Don't sit there. Don't do that. Sovereignty is not a lounge chair. God's aim in His sovereignty is never to relieve you of a sense of urgency to share the gospel. His aim in His sovereignty is never to relieve you of a sense of urgency to share the gospel. This is one of those ways where we're so prone to get it wrong or to miss the mark. J.I. Packer describes it in this way. He wrote a great book called Sovereignty and Evangelism. It's really good. If you're interested, read it. He says this, The temptation is to assert man's responsibility in a way that excludes God from being sovereign or to affirm God's sovereignty in a way that destroys the responsibility of man. Both mistakes need to be guarded against. What what he's painting a picture of here is you have two things side by side in Scripture. They're they're in Scripture, side by side. But I I understand one of them more than the other. And what happens, the mistake that we make is we see these two things. I understand this one more than this one, so I dismiss this one. But you can't do that because that's Scripture. You can't dismiss one of them because you lack understanding in it. So what he's saying is simply, don't reject either of them. Don't reject the responsibility of man for his sin. And don't reject the sovereignty of God in election. Don't reject either of them. He goes on to say, the sovereignty of God and grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. You ever thought of it like that? The sovereignty of God and grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. Some fear that belief in the sovereign grace of God leads to the conclusion that evangelism is pointless, since God will save his elect anyway. That's where you come up with that question, if God's going to save who God's going to save, what's the point in evangelism? This is a false conclusion based on a false assumption. The sovereignty of God and grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. Pointless. The sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless, for it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen, and there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. So you don't get to the conclusion that God's sovereign, what's the point? Rather, God's sovereign. I finally have a point. Evangelism finally has a purpose. Good news, everybody. This isn't pointless. God saves people. It's good news. Don't dismiss one point or the other. Do you realize that the only reason that time has not melted back into eternity is that God has children who do not yet believe? If you're looking for, like, your point in life, or what does all this mean, Just know that the only reason time still exists is that God has children who do not yet believe, and they will not believe if they do not hear. And you have been commissioned by Jesus to help them hear. Is this weighty? Absolutely. Do not use God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness. Do not use God's sovereignty as an excuse for indifference. Do not use God's sovereignty as an excuse for a lack of planning, or a lack of diligence, or lack of follow-through, or lack of attention to detail. We must never slip into an attitude of indifference towards the unbeliever. We must never slip into an attitude of indifference towards the unbeliever. God never says, hey, I'm sovereign. Quit concerning yourself with lost people. He never says that. That's a false conclusion based on a false assumption. Spurgeon rather urges his hearers to meditate with deep solemnity on the condition of the unsaved sinner. We must never jeopardize the integrity of the seed that we sow because the condition of the soils will prove to be very difficult for evangelism. Sometimes evangelism is presented as, presented as this thing where it's like, oh, it's so easy. It's so simple. You just tell people and they believe. It's wonderful. It's like a life of just celebrating. That's not what it's like. The soils prove to be very difficult. Turn back to Matthew 13. As you turn, I want you to look at the soils as an environment. Consider soils to help explain what's going on in the soul of an individual as you obediently share the gospel. Now, each verse that I'm going to share has its counterpart that explains it more fully later in the chapter. So look now at verses 4 and 19 and think of these as environments of the soul of someone as you are sharing the gospel. Verse 4 and verse 19. And as he sowed, Some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Good seed is cast. The true gospel is shared. And it lands in a life of someone who just doesn't understand it. It was sown into their heart as opposed to just being flippantly thrown in the air. Take it or leave it. I don't care. God's sovereign. It's not right. It was sown into their heart. But the evil one has come and snatched it away. That's what happens in evangelism sometimes. Second Corinthians 4 describes this as the God of this world blinding the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you take this possibility into account when you are preparing to try to show someone truth? Do you take into account that there is an evil one who may not want them to see that? Does this not create in you a desire to plead and be as clear as you can be and as plain as you can be? A desire to persevere even when someone seems to be struggling with the truth? Look at verses 5 through 6 and their counterpart, 20 and 21. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is something else that happens in evangelism. Other times in our personal and in our corporate evangelistic efforts, we will scatter good seed. The seed's not faulty. It's not like second-rate seed. It's good seed. And someone will hear it and even receive it with joy. But they will only endure for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they will fall away. Do you have what it takes to persevere through such heartbreak? Maybe some of you have experienced that, where you share the gospel with someone and they seem to receive it with joy, and they're like, "Yes, I like this, but then persecution arises on account of the word, and they fall away. Do you have what it takes to persevere through such heartbreak? Or does your fear of such a possibility keep you from ever sharing the gospel? Does your fear of that possibility keep you from sharing the gospel? If you've ever seen this happen in someone's life, you know how sad it can be. I would offer that by the Holy Spirit, you do have what's needed to persevere. We live in a culture obsessed with efficiency. It's our tendency to want to only sow good seed where we know there will be a worthwhile yield, isn't it? If I said, hey, y'all go tell people about Jesus, and everyone comes back next week and is like, no one believed, there would be something to saying, how can we make this more efficient and make sure we don't waste the seed? We're we're obsessed with efficiency, and this is one area where God's making it clear in the parable of the sower, it's not going to be all that efficient. There's much more investment maybe than there is return, if you want to look at it as a return on investment kind of view. It's our tendency to want to only sow good seed where where we know that there will be a worthwhile yield. But the thing that we do not see in this passage is God giving the sower the ability to know who will and will not believe and be fruitful. It's not in there. I sure wish it was. Man, pastoring would be so much easier. We'll talk more about this next week, but for now, you need to know that it is God's design for you to obediently sow seed while not knowing where enduring healthy fruitfulness will pop up. This is why calculated schemes designed to produce particularly desired results can be nothing more than man centered faithlessness that is, in fact, a stench in the nostrils of God. You can't say, I'm certain 20 people will believe when I'm done with this message. That's man centered. You've lost your focus. So, to recap, we are 0 for 2. Good seed was scattered, and it was not understood. In the second instance, good seed was scattered and even received with joy, but persecution arose on account of the good seed, and the hearer fell away immediately. Maybe this evangelism thing will get a little easier at some point. Let's look at the next part, verse 7 and 22. Verse 7 says, Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 22, As for what was sown among thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Still again, that good seed doesn't produce what you may have hoped for. Rather, the cares of the world choke it out. The deceitfulness of money and worldliness and materialism and the honor and attention that comes with money will actually choke it out for some people. This means that you will pour your life into the life of another. You will get to know them. You will befriend them and be faithful to the call that God has placed on your life to love your neighbor. You will love them well. You'll love them with the truth. You'll sit with them and share a clear presentation of this good news of Jesus Christ. They will hear in your speech something that can't keep from sharing the good news about Jesus. They will seem to receive it. And there will seem to be evidence of new life. Yet in time, they'll quit returning your calls. Your lunch appointment will take a back seat to something more important. It's sad. It is heartbreaking. However, it shouldn't be surprising. God doesn't hide that from us. He tells us what it's going to be like when we sow seed. So we're over 3. My objective this morning is to quicken you to evangelism. And at this point, you may be thinking, you stink at meeting your objective. I'm completely bummed out about evangelism. But do not lose heart. We get to end on a high note. Something scandalous happens in the next verse. Look at verses 8 and 9 and then 23. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Yay for grain. Some hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. And look at verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, 100. In another, 60. In another, 30. What a scandal. God saved someone. You excited about that? I sure am because the first part of this message was kind of a downer. If you're still sitting there thinking that everyone deserves to be saved, I would urge you to see the bankruptcy of life apart from God. Look at the bankruptcy without God's movement. It's only bankruptcy. There is nothing redemptive in any of us. With such a universal propensity to reject God and embrace the flesh, the scandal is that anyone would be saved. So this is good news and you share the good news. Don't keep this a secret. God saves people in Jesus. Tell people that. It's good news. A good seed is sown, and someone has ears to hear. Sometimes the devil doesn't blind minds. Sometimes the joy experienced at first won't later fade away, but it'll endure Sometimes there will be endurance and perseverance through the persecution and tribulation because the value of the word exceeds the hardship of rejection. Some people say, reject me, I don't care, this news is too good. Sometimes the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world don't prevail because the good news is rightly received and treasured. Sometimes people convert. They turn from their sin They repent and follow Jesus and begin to herald the message that they heard from you so that others still might believe. That's really good news. But belief never happens apart from hearing. Belief never happens apart from hearing. In closing, I hope we can see a a bigger picture in this parable. Just because I said in closing, don't stop paying attention. The environment of evangelism in the kingdom of heaven is an environment driven by the message. The environment of evangelism. If you want to be about evangelism like God tells you to be, it's it's an environment driven by the message. It cannot be an environment driven by conversion. You hear that? There's a difference between the two. This is one of the other ways that we can cheapen or jeopardize the seed. Because an environment driven by conversion will have a tendency to jeopardize the integrity of the message. I really want them to convert. I'll say whatever I have to say. The message can be altered to achieve the desired result of a conversion if indeed the environment is driven by conversion. This is when evangelism changes the message and is really no longer evangelism. The message is you are an enemy of God because of your sin. For some of you, maybe you've never heard this before. The message is you are an enemy of God because of your sin, but Jesus Christ makes a way for you to be accepted by God. That's the good news of the gospel. Praise the Lord. But when you take that and you alter it because your environment is driven by conversion, you end up with this. You're a special snowflake. God loves you so much, and this is all about you. He wants your acceptance so bad that all you have to do is repeat after me and you'll be saved. That's all. It takes nothing more. That's not the gospel. That's some watered down bunk. It's not the gospel. A pastor once said, Don't be needlessly offensive. I think people who believe in the doctrines of grace have a tendency to be needlessly offensive. I've heard it said that when you first read John 6 or Romans 9 or Ephesians or a lot of other pieces of scripture, that you should just be locked in a closet for five years. Because you read it, you're offensive. God's sovereign. Shut up and believe. It's not how we tell people about Jesus. So a pastor once said, Don't be needlessly offensive. However, there is no painless way to tell people that they are under the wrath of God. Don't be needlessly offensive, but there is no painless way to tell people that they are under the wrath of God. So the environment that we see here is an environment driven by the message, not conversion. I hear people sometimes say of an evangelistic effort or, They say, you know, this is all worth it, even if only one person converts or believes, even if only one person joins, just one. But I would offer that that's still an environment driven by conversion. God is still glorified even if there is no immediate change in the life of an individual. Don't don't be mistaken. He's going to get his glory. So if you have a time where you share the gospel and there's no response, God's getting his glory. And don't lose heart. We are so foolish to think that one short conversation is going to be all that someone needs to totally understand, salvation in Christ. We're foolish to think that one well-placed altar call with just the right song is enough to bring about true belief in Christ. Sometimes that's the case. I've seen people who are continuing to persevere in in their faith. That that's what it was. It was this one thing, and bam, they got it. But more often, it comes from reasoning with someone over time, befriending them, paying attention to them. They're created in the image of God. People are far more interesting than we realize. Sit, listen to them, talk to them, hear about their family, their job, the way they think. They're created in the image of God. But the only way that they'll rightly bear the image of God is in Christ, and that's the message you have to carry. They will not believe if they don't hear. So it usually takes a lot more time. Now, there's also a flip side to this. we got to be careful. While an environment driven by conversion will have a tendency to jeopardize the integrity of the message, an environment rightly driven by the message must not dismiss the need for conversion. Think of conversion as repentance. I care about you repenting. I don't want you to just hear about Jesus and continue in your sin because the message you heard about Jesus is not having the right impact on your life. So, an environment rightly driven by the message does not dismiss the great need for conversion. That is our aim. Acts 26, 18 says, I am sending you to open their eyes. I'm hoping for opened eyes. I'm not just, here's the gospel, take it or leave it, I don't really care, God's sovereign. Man, that is heartless. You love people with that gospel. I'm sending you to open their eyes, make no mistake. Just because we don't have an altar call at the end of every service does not mean that we do not deeply hope that someone will hear the good news of Jesus and turn from sin and live a life for the glory of God. That's part of our message. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. We should care deeply about eyes being opened. We should care deeply about people turning from a life of sin. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5 helps us to understand maybe a little more what we're sowing and how it happens in the environment of the field and the soul of an individual who hears the gospel. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5, what then is Apollos? This is Paul writing a letter to the church in Corinth, which was pretty screwed up. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? servants through whom you believed. Let me just stop there for a second. Do you see yourself as a servant through whom someone might believe? That should be pretty exciting. A servant through whom someone believes. Servants through whom you believe. That's what Paul and Apollos are. As the Lord assigned to each. So the Lord is assigning who's going to tell who about the gospel, share that good news, and some will believe through your servant. Lifestyle. And listen to this, what then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's yield, God's God's field, God's building. So one man plants, one man waters, only God gives the growth. Just because you call yourself reformed and believe in the doctrine of election does not excuse you from evangelism. Yes, it is only God who gives the growth, but His expectation is that you are planting and watering and sowing. And on the other side, when you tell me that you have within you a deep desire to evangelize and share the gospel, you are not thereby allowed to dismiss the biblical doctrine of election as it is breathed out by God in His Word. Because while planting and watering are of extreme importance, it is only God who gives the growth. You can plant a garden, you can water that garden, you can pull weeds, you can't make a thing grow. Growth is never attributed to planters, waters, or sowers. Friends, my hope is to shoot the elephant and encourage you to go and do the same thing. Election and evangelism go together election and evangelism are not opposed to each other. That's what your not-so-subtle bulletin cover means. They're hand in hand, moving forward together. They're not opposed to each other. Someone once asked Spurgeon to reconcile the seemingly contradictory biblical truth that man is responsible for his sin, and God is sovereign to redeem his elect. Essentially, they looked at Spurgeon, who's a pretty smart guy, and they said, hey, man, is it man's choice or is it God's choice? Is man responsible for his sin or is God going to be sovereign to save his elect? Which is it? How do you reconcile these two things? And Spurgeon responded, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. You get that? I never reconcile friends. That's like bringing in two people who are not at odds with each other and saying, guys, I really want y'all to just bury the hatchet don't reconcile friends. Evangelism and election go together side by side in the Scripture. If you have a way of thinking that doesn't allow for that, don't toss something from Scripture. Change your way of thinking. I'll close with Matthew 10, verse 32 through 33. You can turn there. Matthew 10, verse 32 through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will, also, I will acknowledge also before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny also before my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is that this would not be man-centered. When I see election and evangelism sitting side by side, it's hard for me to embrace both equally. I have a tendency towards one over the other. And if any of us sitting here have that same tendency, I pray that you would just help us to be clearer in our understanding of you, your will, and your design. Help us not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may discern that which is good and acceptable and perfect and pleasing to you. Lord, I hope that everyone in this room is acknowledged by you before God, because I hope we're proclaiming you and acknowledging you before men in our very short time here on this earth. Lord, our days are filled with opportunities to share the gospel. Our days are filled with different circumstances and conversations where I believe it to be your design that we open our mouths about Jesus. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us not be ashamed to acknowledge you before men. If we have crippling fears of failure in evangelism, don't let that keep us from sharing the gospel. Lord, I believe that there is confusion in this subject. I'm thankful we get to talk about it for a few weeks. But my prayer is that we would see your word, that we would humbly submit. As Paul says later on to the church in Corinth, that he would most gladly spend and be spent on souls. Let us be a people most gladly spending and being spent on the souls of your children. Thank you for giving us a purpose in evangelism. Help us to be obedient to what you tell us to be obedient in, never forgetting that it is only God who saves. We don't know how to save people, but you do, so we trust you completely. Help us to show that trust in our obedience. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: You already enjoyed the supper this morning, aren't you? I pray you are. Man, y'all look kind of subdued. Good word, Scott. Thank you for sharing that. It's good uh, before we enjoy this privilege we call the Lord's Supper and are reminded from the Word, we're to remember Christ. This is what we do. This is His purpose. Um, With that comes a warning from the Word that we're not to do this in an unworthy manner. And that instruction... In that instruction, the Word talks about how we move as a body, how we look to each other, how we can be concerned just about ourselves while someone over here may be hungry. So when we do this in remembrance of Christ, it's taking our eyes off ourselves. this flesh we wear, blinded eyes, deaf ears. Hearts that are hard. And we remember that in Christ, and we just saw it in the text. Hope you didn't miss that. Scott was talking about evangelism. That good word we have is these blinded eyes are made to see. Our ears can now hear, and our hearts can understand that's given to us. That's God's sovereignty. That's the act of God. And we have the privilege to share that good news. Scott said something at the start of his sermon. It's good to repeat. We were built for evangelism when we were built for worship. This is our opportunity to worship. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed and took bread, betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Let's take just a minute. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are grateful for the finished work of Christ. Father, we're thankful for eyes that can see and ears that can hear and hearts that can understand your gospel. Father, I pray this morning as we grow, grow in our worship, and grow in our eagerness to share that gospel for your sake and for your glory. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of how it may be received, Father, we can worship in our obedience and our love for you. Father, as we take this supper this morning, so good to be reminded his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Father, we pray this morning that we proclaim his death, his resurrection, and our redemption by your purpose and by your plan and by your good pleasure. Father, we are thankful for all the blessings we have in Christ, and we pray in His Please don't
0: let that proclamation end with the end of the song. Please go and continue to proclaim that. Um, salvation always comes with the message of salvation. So if you have salvation in Christ, you, you can't be unbothered or not bothered with the message of salvation. Uh, they, they go with each other. Um, the gospel and our evangelistic... Um, outreaches, they have, they happen personally, they'll happen day in and day out with you guys individually, but they also happen corporately, and one of the corporate expressions that we've had in this community has been out at Grand Park, and we did summer family clubs um, three, three Wednesdays in a row in June, and one of our follow-ups to that is going to be this Saturday. So, since we talked about evangelism this morning, you all have to be a part of it, or you'll, you'll be smited or something. Um, <laughs> But this Saturday, um, July 9th, we're going to be at the Family Swim at J. Lou Park. And this is a follow-up from our uh, summer clubs out at Graham Park. And the expectation is that you're there, that you're living in a way that glorifies Jesus, and that you're talking about Jesus. This is an evangelistic outreach to our community. We're probably not going to have an altar call. But what is expected is that you're there. You're living a life for the glory of God, and you're talking about Jesus as you have every opportunity. I urge you to be a part of it. It's going to be a pretty sweet time. Um, Let's stand. We'll be dismissed. I'll pray. Lord, you're incredibly good. As your word says, you're great. You're greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. And the fact that we have been given salvation in Christ and we have the message of salvation entrusted to us, um, I pray that that greatness is never commonplace. I pray that we would never lack urgency in sharing that good news with others. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for a a work, a finished work outside of us. We thank you that Christ's righteousness is, is counted as ours. Help us to walk in that. Help us to continue to want to better understand all the beautiful mystery that's wrapped up in it. Lord, we desire to see uh, people turn from a life of sin and embrace you. And we, as professing believers, desire to daily turn from our sin and embrace Christ and walk in a manner worthy of the call that's placed on our life. Lord, I I beg the Holy Spirit to work mightily in this congregation to do just that. We love you. We thank you for this day. You've made this day, and we rejoice in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good day.